the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Hank Davis turns 75 this week, and the multiverse interlocutor breathes a sigh of relief because it still has the greatest repository of universal memory around. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have an interview with Frank Chadwick talking about his great science fiction novel, Ship of Destiny. This one is a follow-up to Frank's Chain of Command, but you can easily read this book as a standalone novel. It's really got everything you want in a great science fiction novel. And it's great military science fiction, too. Great characters, inter-service conflicts, scary and intriguing aliens, cool science fiction ideas, great stuff. And we'll talk about that with Frank Chadwick. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now, here's the news. The March hardcovers are lined up at the gate and set to blow forth with the massive March winds next Tuesday. These include Forced Perspectives by Tim Powers. Egyptian Death Magic in a Haunted Los Angeles Fugitive federal agents Sebastian Vickery and Ingrid Castine, both sensitive to the ghosts that haunt the modern Los Angeles highways, are plunged into the supernatural secrets of the vast city and its history, from the fallout of satanic indie movies of the 60s to the unquiet La Brea Tar Pits at midnight to a haunted sunken city off the coast of San Pedro seeking to rise again. Vickery and Castine may be old hands at dealing with the spirit worlds of L.A., but they have never been in a pursuit so deadly and with the stakes so high. Also out in March is Castaway Resolution by Eric Flint and Reich E. Spohr. Survive and thrive on an alien planet. The Kimai family and a second group of castaways, led by redoubtable Sergeant Campbell, have finally joined forces landing on the bizarre planet Lincoln. They have survived crash landings, venom bites, disease, and even the destruction and consumption of one of their floating island homes. They have learned to live, even to prosper, in this strange new place. But the resourcefulness of the castaways may not be enough. Because the planet Lincoln is far from done with them yet. And finally out in March is Ship of Destiny by Frank Chadwick. We'll talk about that very soon with Frank. The secret of immortality is within reach. When a mysterious alien probe materializes from jump space and remotely reprograms USS Cameron Bay's star drive, Naval Reserve Officer Sam Bitka and his crew begin an involuntary voyage that takes them 3,000 light years out of known space and into the heart of an ancient, unknown civilization. But the genetically altered immortals known as the Guardians soon turn murderously violent. Now Sam and his crew must elude capture and return, with news of a powerful new civilization bent on their destruction. But the crew of the Bay may also be carrying a secret that would change life in the galaxy forever. The path to immortality. Hey, I also want to tell you about the Bain March contest while I'm at it. It's Curtains for Humanity! In Frank Chadwick's latest novel, Ship of Destiny, Sam Bitka and his crew encounter a race of immortals bent on destroying humankind. Chadwick puts his own unique spin on the tale, but this isn't the first time aliens have attempted to take humans down a notch in fiction. So, in a short paragraph, a hundred words or so, tell us which of your favorite science fiction novel, film, or television shows in which extraterrestrials threaten our existence is the best, and why for a chance to win a copy of Ship of Destiny, signed by Frank Chadwick. The deadline is March 20th. Find out more at the Bain website. And don't forget, Ship of Destiny by Frank Chadwick 
Castaway Resolution by Eric Flint and Reiki Spore, and Force Perspectives by Tim Powers are now available at booksellers everywhere, or will be next Tuesday. I want to welcome Frank Chadwick to the podcast. Back to the podcast. Hello, Frank. Hi, Cody. How are you? I'm all right. I um, understand you just went to uh, Paris and uh, had a look around there. Um, tell us a little bit about what you just told me about your trip. Well, Maybe I, that would be interesting. Well, it was a, it's a great trip. It was a great city. Um, I, I just fell in love with Paris. Normally, if I'm gone for like a week or ten days, I'm really ready to come home. And I was there for ten days, and I wasn't ready to come home. Uh, I'd still be there if I could. Um, so I love the city, but one of the reasons I went there was uh, I, I'm a I've been interested for 20-some years now in the Persian Empire. And uh, the Louvre has, uh, in the Susa room, uh, a lot of the original artifacts that the French were the first to discover when they re-excavated, when they excavated Susa, the capital, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. And I, I mentioned that most, most of the times when you see Persian stuff, you'll see on the cover of books and stuff these beautiful um, colored uh, brick representations of um, the, the, the Persian royal guard, which and it's usually called the Frieze of the Immortals. Um, and that's actually at the Louvre now. That's from Susa. It was, it was excavated at Susa, and it's in the Louvre. They have some absolutely stunning stuff about Persia. In fact, I even ended up, there's, they have one small artifact. Uh, I didn't mention this to you, but I, they, in their gift shop, they had duplicated that artifact um, in, in a in a cast with on a on, on a mountain, I actually have that on my bookshelf now. Uh, so I bought a oh, piece of Persia cool. back from the Louvre with me. Yeah, yeah. so it was a great cool. trip. Um, and that was uh, that was one of the highlights. Is, uh, other than that, did you go to Notre Dame and see what has become of the place? I, I, I took a, a boat tour and went past Notre Dame. I got real close. I mean, the boat because it's right on the water; it goes right around the island. So I got to see up close the work they're doing to restore that. Uh, I, I hit a bunch of the, you know, the museums, like uh, uh, Les Invalides, uh, which has got the Museum of the French Army, and uh, uh, Musée d'Orsay, which is where all the Impressionists are. And, and, and the Louvre was a great day. Uh, and hit a bunch of other exhibits as well, and I did some tour, so, some concerts, and a great opera, uh, Tales of Hoffman, which is this crazy opera with you know, it was done in 1880-something or 1890, and it's got, you know, ghosts and demons and mad scientists and a robot monster and, you know, sword fights and I mean, lots of sex, all this crazy stuff you don't think of as opera. But um, So I, I did all that, and uh, but I spent a lot of time. Uh, I, I had some my, – my, my guides, were, uh, one of them is a, 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 a French citizen a long time, a resident of Paris, and we'd spent a lot of time just walking in Paris instead of just hitting the highlights, just seeing the city. And the city itself is really cool. So I, that that's the kind of the, the part of Paris I ended up falling in love with is not just oh, yeah, the museum and stuff, uh, but the city yeah, itself. I just I really remember those the subway entrances were so pretty to me. That was fine. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, and all the, it's, it's miles and miles of architecture that's really all from the uh, uh, late 1800s uh, and through the, well, mid to late 1800s and early 1900s. I mean, it, it, and it's all been uh, preserved. It's, they haven't knocked down all their old stuff and put up, you know, towers of, of, of steel and glass. And uh, it's uh, this it did right around the turn of the century, and they've kind of kept that look and kept... Uh, uh, so, so the architecture is just yeah, stuff, but yeah. just the everyday architecture cool. is just beautiful. Well, and I guess Germany didn't have to bomb it in World War Two, so <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Fun. I mean, it was not bombed. It was. <laughs> it's one of the. It's, it's yeah. one of the few places that didn't get bombed. So, uh, so it's pretty, yeah. pretty good shape, pretty intact. Yeah, Prague is like that. All right, let's talk about the book. <laughs> okay. So, let me tell. Let me talk a little bit more about you. Uh, Frank Chadwick is the uh, New York is a New York Times uh, number one bestselling author, author of over two hundred books, articles, columns on military history, military affairs, as well as over one hundred military and science fiction board and role playing games. Very famous uh, game designer. 
his game, Space 1889, was the first steampunk game and remains a, a cult favorite. His other game writing credits include uh, On Guard, groundbreaking SF uh, writing for Traveler, um, The New Era, that one, and many others. Chadwick's uh, science fiction novels include, Frank's science fiction novels include Come the Revolution, How Dark the World Becomes, um, a really great steampunk thriller, really the only steampunk band has ever done, I <laughs> think, uh, The Forever Engine. Um, it was really steampunk. Um, and uh, Chain of Command and its sequel, which is Ship of Destiny, which we want to talk about now at Booksellers Everywhere, is Ship of Destiny by Frank Chadwick. Um so uh, maybe tell us a little bit uh, of the backstory and, and where Chain of Command uh, let off and where uh, Sam Bitka is and, and Cassandra, uh, what's her last name, Atwater something? Atwater Jones. Jones. Atwater Jones, yeah. yeah. Well, at the, at the Chain of Command, of course, tells the story of the first interstellar war in the history of the Kotohas, which is the uh, this uh, conf- confederation of six intelligent races that have been hanging around in one form or another together for like 300 years. Humans have only been around for about the last 70 or so of that. Um, but the, uh, it, that chain of command starts with the outbreak of the first real war, which is between four Earth nations. Because, and, and, all, and by the way, all of, the, all of the, the races here are all still divided into nations. I mean, there's no, like, central government for any of these things. So and so the Kotohas is almost in some ways like the UN but it's got a little bit more uh, a little bit more uh, legal authority. Um but this is between four sovereign earth nations which form a coalition and and the largest strongest of the of the of, of the nations of the um uh, the Viroki which is the the most scientifically advanced of the six races. Um and and that that War ends up fighting itself out by the end of, um, at least comes to a, 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 a pause, a, a ceasefire, right around the time of the end of uh, Chain of Command. And so Ship of Destiny kind of picks up where that leaves off really just uh, a few months after that, um, or, or about eight months after, depending upon which time span you look at, because there's like two different timelines that go on in the ship, but it picks up... Um, with those characters, just a just a little bit later in uh, in, in the history of the Koto House. So we have um, well, explain what. So Sam is Sam Bick is our is is one of our. He's basically the main character, and he um, he did great uh, using the. He's a. Uh, reservist in the United States Space Navy, um, who was called to great things in the first book. And um, mm-hmm. he, his great reward was what? <laughs> well, it, 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 he uh, was uh, court-martialed, actually, almost court-martialed. He was threatened with court-martial for insubordination and conduct injurious to order, um, but, but actually kind of got out of that because uh, one of the admirals above him Offered him uh, admiral's an admiral's flag instead, uh, and and he accepted her judgment, which which involved some reprimands, but it also involved a promotion. Um, so he kind of ducked that bullet. Um, but not long after that, and just at the opening of the, one of the timelines of the book, he is uh, he loses command of the Puebla because he is supposedly given a promotion, which is to command an assault, a somewhat larger ship, an assault transport, the USS Comron Bay. Um, it's actually it's actually a way of getting him out of the way because he was he was trying to uh, stop the upward career of a, a, an officer he does not think very much of, but who's very well connected politically. And since he won't withdraw his unfavorable uh, um, a fitness report, um, they instead move him out of the way into another ship. Um, so that's what kind of sets up a lot of the events of Ship of Destiny is that that holding that kind of that political disagreement and personal disagreement from chain of command, which kind of bubbles up again at the beginning of Ship of Destiny and sets him on a different course. Yeah, there is, um, I mean, I think he did a lot of, uh, of research of what it's like to be a reservist in the Navy and, and sort of, trans- I mean, you tell me, because it certainly feels like you'd, 
that that um, that there's a lot of reality to that that um, contention I, I, between. There, there. I did, um, and, and one of the things I'm real happy with is the number of people, former Navy people, who have really enjoyed the book. And I had, I had one guy. I didn't even a guy. I know I didn't even know he was former Navy. He'd been Navy when he was much younger, but he later had a different career, and that's kind of what I knew him as. And he read it, and he came up to me, and he said, "How did you get all this stuff right?" Yeah. <laughs> um, the, and, and he had been a reservist, a reserve officer who was in active duty, and, and, and he said, yeah, I mean, this, the, 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 the cultural friction points between uh, career officers and reserve officers, the um, friction points between different departments that see that their function as being more important than others, um, I, I tried to get all that in there. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of, in chain of command, there's an awful lot of attention to the culture of, uh, the internal culture of, of, of navies in general. Um, and that, now that was, and a lot of that was based upon uh, the research for chain of command. A lot of that was based upon the Guadalcanal campaign, the naval Guadalcanal campaign in World War II, uh, because it was right at the beginning of the war and, and nobody was really ready for it, which is why the U.S. Navy got hammered a bunch of times at Guadalcanal before they finally kind of Got their got their legs underneath them and figured out what they were doing. Um, so and they it, and it was a t- terrific psychological problem because people just hadn't realized that a they were going to have to go to war and b when they did the first thing that was going to happen were some Asian guys who they thought of as you know little funny guys were going to come and just hand them their ass on a platter over and over again. So I mean it was a huge wake up call. Um, and so a lot of that. Uh, there's a lot of very good memoirs about that period of the war uh, of the Navy, and uh, and, that, and I owe a lot to those. Um, and and one very good novel, which was uh, Herman Wolk's The Cane Mutiny, um, is not exactly that period, but it, it's, it's but it kind of deals with a lot of the same issues of reservists and regulars. And that was and what Wolk did in World War II was he was a an officer, a reserve officer on a destroyer minesweeper, just like the USS Kane, and ended up its executive officer by the end of the war. But he served all through the war on on, on a destroyer minesweeper, and boy, it's a for anybody who is interested in kind of what that felt like. Fiction, good fiction that's that, that, that's done by someone who actually lived through it is much better than nonfiction for telling you day-to-day living and what it was like and what the the, the personal interactions between people are. So that was it. Yeah. So, yeah, I did a lot of research on that and that, but, but that was one of the books that was really a big help in terms of the just how people lived and how they interacted. Yeah, I love Woke as a writer. Uh, I just uh, actually um, finished reading War and Remembrance uh, last uh, last fall, and uh-huh. uh, it, it's wonderful. Um yeah, a lot of good he was a, stuff he was a terrific there. writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, there's, yeah, even a, there's even a nod to woke. By the way, there's even a nod to woke in Ship of Destiny. Although I don't know that a lot of people have noticed it yet. In that, and this doesn't give anything away, but in that, Mo Rice, who's a character from Chain of Command, at one point uh, mentions that. Um, his heart belongs to Miss Marjorie Mer- Morgenstern of Del Rio, Texas. Uh, and, of course, Marjorie Morgenstern is the actual name of the heroine in Wilkes, I think, second novel, Marjorie Morningstar, because Morgenstern means Morningstar. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of a nod to Wilk right there. Very cool. Very cool. All right, so you start Ship of Destiny with the begin- with a quote from this thing called the Odyssey. Why did you do that? Well, because it, I don't suppose this is given a lot of way to say this. In a sense, Ship of Destiny is a retelling of the Odyssey. Um, it's uh, it, it certainly it's the same general situation, and I don't want to say that it, it's meant to follow it. It's not like uh, um, um, uh, Ulysses, James Joyce's Ulysses, which follows the Odyssey chapter by chapter, scene by scene. Uh, it certainly isn't that. Um, but in, or, oh, in, brother, in general layout, thou? what's that? Or, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. Oh, yes, or, 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 oh, brother, where art thou, which also, which also follows the Odyssey. Um, uh, yeah. and this actually has, you can find, you can, if you dig and dig and dig, you can fit, you can, you can kind of 
pull out some of the the strains that that are kind of deliberately buried uh, in it. But um, it's mostly a story of a journey, a, a perilous journey, and a captain who has to navigate, has to somehow, through all these uh, supernatural, uh, enormously powerful uh, barriers to his return has to get his ship and his crew back home somehow, and 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 then all of that what that journey um, makes him go through makes him understand uh, what it costs him, uh, and all of those things. I mean, that's to me what the Odyssey has come to be about. It's not about the ancient Mediterranean. It's really about people's journey through perilous life and the challenges and the and the triumphs and the disappointments uh, that they have along the way and how that journey changes them and that's really what ship of destiny is about and, and in that sense you know it is a ret- it's absolutely a retelling of the odyssey in that sense although you know sam bitka although he bears uh, some resemblance to odysseus in terms of the way he deals with things and his his knack for um puzzling out answers to you know, to things, uh, unusual answers. Uh, that's very much like Odysseus. Um, but it's not exactly, uh, but I don't want people to think that it's just, it ends like the Odyssey, because it's not really meant to be, uh, it, it, it draws more on the theme of the Odyssey than plot structure. It's not, it's not the plot of that story told over, but it is very much, I think, the theme of the Odyssey. Yeah, sure. And uh, um, so it's hard to talk about too much uh, without treading on uh, plot spoilers, which we don't want to do. But let me um, tell me about Incident 17 and how that sort of uh, starts the uh, starts the ball rolling. Right. Um, Incident 17 is is the. Um, uh, the inciting incident of the novel, and it actually takes place on about the third or fourth chapter, but you know about it right from the beginning because the first part of it talks about it retrospectively. Like I say, there are really kind of two timelines going in the book. Um, But Incident 17 is when, uh, very shortly after Sam takes command of the Kamran Bay, um, they are supposed to make a routine jump to... Ikta, which is the homeworld of the Buran, and by the way, that's one of the one of the uh, alien races in the Kotohas that we haven't met before. And you meet the they've been talked about, but you actually meet the Buran in this book. There are Buran on board that he's taking, and and they're they're odd. But, but we'll let readers discover that. Um, but the uh, just as they're not long before they start to they're due to make the jump, um, an object materializes from jump space fairly close to them. Um, and it appears to be unmanned. It's fairly small, but it begins broadcasting uh, uh, sensors, and when it picks up the location of their ship, it transmits something to them, and his ship just on its own jumps. Um, and and they discover after the jump, they're, they end up in, they're not anywhere, when they, except they're just out in deep space between stars, that... They've lost control of their jump drive. It has been somehow taken over, and now it's on a pre- preset course that is taking them jump by jump out of the Kotohas and on a very, uh, and for a very to a destination a long, long way away. Um, and that's what and that's Incident 17, and that's what sets up not only what happens to Sam and his crew, but also it it, it sets off a bit of a. Uh, uh, a political problem back in the Kotohas because nobody there knows what happened to him, and there's a lot of speculation, and there's people with with some agendas as to how they want this to be explained in terms of what that will get them. And so that's kind of a parallel story being told, and that's Cassandra Atwater-Jones, who is a character from Chain of Command, is kind of at the heart of that because she ends up being, being made head of the what's called the Incident 17 Working Group, which is supposed to come up with an ex- figure out what actually happened. Um, and so those two stories kind of play out in tandem through the novel. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about her end of things, just to, um, before we get back to Sam. Um, and she's not exactly Sam's girlfriend, but maybe she is she, at the end of the chain. Well, 
No, at yes. the end of Chain of Command, she is like half an hour from being his girlfriend. I, I, I'm surprised how many people have thought that the end of Chain of Command was ambiguous on that score. To me, I mean, it's pretty. I, I thought it was pretty clear that their you know, that their next stop is a hotel room um, because he has said you know he's falling for someone, but he you know that she had said that the answer to you know, the, the the way to de-romanticize is you know sex is the mechanism for kind of stripping away romantic illusions and he said you know i'm beginning to romanticize someone but you know i but you've told me that there's an answer to that sex and she says yeah but you've got this thing about not wanting to have sex with people in your chain of command and he says yeah but i don't take orders from limeys which is his way of saying jokingly you're not in my chain of command and she says, well, we'll see about that. Which is, but I mean, what that means to me is we'll see about whether or not she'll take orders from me at some point. Um, and I don't think she means it in a military sense. So to me, that was her acceptance of his proposition. Yeah. I mean, and I don't understand why people found that difficult to understand. I mean, that was, to me, pretty clear that, this is, that these two are going to go find some place, a, a, motel, a hotel room <laughs> uh, right away. Um, but... but Ship of Destiny begins uh, a couple months later, and at that point, she is his ex-lover. Uh, they have, you know, they've been together, and they broke up. And so, a lot of the book is why that was, what it was that caused them to break up, because it really bothers Sam because he doesn't really understand what happened. Um, Cassandra does because she was the she was the uh, she was the one who act, who actually broke up with him, um, and so. Part of that is uh, finding out Cassandra gradually revealing to at least herself and some, and partially to Mo Rice, who's become a very close friend of hers, what happened in her, it, it, to, to, to break this up. Um, and and it's and, and the other part of it is Sam kind of coming to figuring out how to come to grips with this lost love, with this broken love affair. Um, so that's that's a major theme of the book as well is that. Um, how how love affairs can kind of come apart, not necessarily because of anybody's fault, um, and then and what you where you go from there, um, and and maybe and is there a possibility they'll put this back together? And well, there's a possibility. I mean, there's a, these two are certainly bound to each other in a lot of ways, um, but they're but they're complicated people. Cassandra, perhaps more so. Than Sam. Sam's a pretty simple guy when you get right down to it. He's clever, but he's he's not really that complicated. But Cassandra's pretty complicated. Yeah, and she's a spy. Yeah, she is. She's military intelligence, intelligence and she's at times has had has, has done undercover work. We find that out during the course of Ship of Destiny that she has at some time done some unspecified um, undercover work. Um, so yes, she is a sometimes spy. Uh, and sometime analyst. So explain a little bit about how these drives, because this is at the heart of the conflict of, of most every one of your books that is set in this world, how these uh, mm -hmm. drives work on the starships, and what is well, the problem for, for humans? Uh, well, how about they work them. is, of course, the big question that no one knows. I mean, it, but in terms of how it, the drive, the Viroki supposedly invented the jump drive, um, they they have not allowed anyone else to know what the science of the drive is. Uh, people can lease them from the manufacturers. There is an enor enormously effective anti-tamper device on the drives, um, which if they're entered, uh, if the core of the drive is entered at all, um, it releases a, uh, a, a, a microbial cloud, which is both... Uh, a, a, an incredibly effective solvent, on it, and it's also a neurotoxin um, that will. Uh, so it it it, it attacks uh, spacesuits. It kills people. It's uh, uh, and it's so effective that the the standard procedure on a starship is if there's an accidental breach of the drive thing that releases the thing, you just eject the drive capsule immediately uh, because there's no way of containing that that microbial solvent cloud um, short of just getting rid of the drive module. So that, that, so that's the way that the Viroki keep anyone from examining it and doing any sort of reverse engineering. The operating principle of the drive is just not known to anyone. People know how to plug the components in. 
They know how to operate the control systems and the interface. That's all they know about the drive. Now, we do know from the previous book in Chain of Command that uh, one Viroki military got a hold of the manufacturer's codes for one of the manufacturers that enabled them to kind of activate the drives remotely and turn them into a weapon. That was kind of the, the key weapon system in chain of command that they used to really cripple the Earth fleet in the first battle. Um, so we know that, and we, we know that it's, and we know actually from uh, come the revolution that there's something really odd about the uh, about the, the 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 fact that the drive system uses um, a bioengineered at least defense mechanism, um, and uh, th- that's not like anything the Viroki have done. And uh, we know that the, the, the um, uh, Sasha Narodnyo's estranged father, who was a biochemist, as a actually ended up working on some related projects and uh, and spilled the beans to Sasha that there's just something really strange about all this. So we know that there's a lot of things strange about the drive, but we don't really know in any of the previous books how that goes together. In Ship of Destiny, you yeah. end up finding out, you pretty much end up finding out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we should say any more about it than that, but all those threads yeah. come together and kind of get tied up in Ship of Destiny. Yeah. And Cassandra, on her end, is, I mean, part of what she's doing is there's been an ejected drive, or there's a drive that they think they can get a hold of. Yes. Um, that will not be protected by this um, this cloud of nanites. Right. And she's after um, in that just sets up all kind of political repercussions. It, it and does. And, and, and for those Bane readers who read the introductory short story that's online, uh, which is you know, they can get right now, right? It, it's, it's up on the Bane right. website yeah. called Adrift. Uh, it explains how that basically the, the, the genesis of how that piece of intelligence gets to Cassandra Atwater-Jones months later. Um, uh, and, but, and that story involves uh, Sasha Naradnyo, uh, his, his first return since uh, uh, come the revolution. Um, yeah, so his fingerprints now that, are um, on a lot of this. Yeah, Adrift you can also find in the uh, free ebook download, Free Stories 2020 at bain.com, where okay. you can, uh, it'll, be, it'll be there long after, I mean, it'll, it'll be online. Uh, but it won't always be on the front page, but you can always find it. Uh, there'll be a link to it. Uh, and uh, you can always just download it in that that anthology as well. Yeah. So thereafter, yeah. so there's there's political machinations going on, and we get to uh, we get to meet some of the admiralty, including the uh, the relatives of that guy that Sam hates so much. Or yeah. That, um, that, Incom- he doesn't hate him. He's just an incompetent boob. Well, he, I'm not even sure he's incompetent. He's soulless. He's just. Uh, it, it's not that he's not smart. It's that he's just. He has no regard for right. anyone but himself. He's uh, to What's the point of being again? dangerous. Gold, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Larry Goldjune uh, is his name. Goldjune. Is yeah. that Larry Goldjune? Um, which is his name is a play on is, is as as a lot of the names are in, the, in 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 a lot of books you know not just mine but his uh, his his is an anglicized version of the word uh, gold yunga which literally means golden boy um, which is kind of the way Larry's perceived in the navy as the golden boy um, the uh, his we've met his uncle before at least at remote because he was the the chief of naval operations of the Outworld Coalition, and uh, that, that's Cedric Goldjune. Um, the uh, but we meet in this book uh, his father, Jacob Goldjune, um, who uh, I, I think everyone expects to be a certain guy, and I think I'm gonna, I think they'll be surprised by who Jacob Goldjune actually turns out to be in this book. He's an inter- he's an interesting guy, I think, a very interesting character. I like him. Yeah, yeah. I like him as a character, uh, you know. 
Yeah. One of the things that um, it's there's a lot of things that are similar to what you find in a Weber novel in this section of the story. I just wanted to bring that out to uh, to readers because I think that um, you have the same feel for for Navy politics and the way navies work. Um, so if you like uh, if you like those Honor Harrington stories, um, I think you might find a lot of uh, a lot of similarities here. Uh, well, uh, let's discuss what's going on with Sam. All right, so he's on the Cameron Bay, um, and it is a transport ship that has uh, a, a marine contingent, and it's got a bunch of the, the Kodaha's alien representatives. What what are they doing? Who are they, and what are they? why were they originally there? And, it, and it's jumped out of the system into this weird new place. Right. What, what happened, one of the things that happened as a result of chain of command, uh, once once the Kodohas found out that there, that this one kind of rogue military group had used a the the, uh, the, the manufacturers what's called the cheat code, which lets them get into a lockdown system to if it so that they can get into a system that's somehow locked up. But it, in this case, it was used as to weaponize the, the drive. Once people realized that that. One manufacturer had this. They realized all the manufacturers could have this, which means it would be possible for someone to blow up every jump drive, any jump drive. And this caused the um, the stock to crash for the jump drive manufacturers. Um, and it also caused most of the shipping companies. They had also caused the stock to crash on all the insurance companies that insured uh, starships. At which point they pulled their insurance coverage. At which point the the, the commercial shipping lines didn't have insurance anymore and just stopped uh, taking passengers. They just basically temporarily shut down. They'll probably work all that out. But in the interim, transport and travel within the Kotoha is just kind of ground to a halt. And to keep things going, military transport started just taking the normal passenger and cargo loads that would be normally hauled by civilian ships, at least the stuff that was necessary to keep communication and, and commerce going in the Kotoha. So these military trans- so the military transport that uh, Sam has uh, a command of, it turns out it's got a bunch of kind of VIP passengers on board because that's the only way that they can get around right now. Um, so, so that's why he has a pretty eclectic group of people on his, on his ship uh, when this when this all takes place, it's also why there's one of Admiral who really, really doesn't care for him very much because he views Sam's discovery of this in the previous novel as having ruined his 401k um, and and precipitated his divorce. So he's so there's all sorts of different things like that going on uh, that uh, and and that Admiral ends up that's Admiral Stevens. He was the uh, he's mentioned in the first book, but he's got a little bit more of a role to play in Ship of Destiny. Um, so that's so, so that's how all that weird group of people get there, and he's got a nice, an interesting group of people. He's got a, a former war correspondent. He's got a uh, Nobel laureate in uh, biology. Um, he's got uh, a couple, He's got a uh, Baroque uh, trade diplomat who's a real pain in the ass. Um, uh, he's got a a, 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 a very well known musician. Um, so all sorts of, uh, of, of, and just an interesting variety of people. So let's, um, I want to talk about uh, the Guardians uh, a bit and talk about the, I, without giving too much away, but the, the idea, because the theme of this, uh, of a great deal of the book is about immortality and the implications yes, of immortality. Um, and we want to touch on that, I think. Um, maybe we could talk hypothetically, if there were a race of guardians, <laughs> if there were a race of, of immortals um, in a book called Ship of Destiny, what yes. would it be like? If, if we were to encounter one, yes. Yeah. What, what would they be What What would they be like? What, what's the... Yeah, yeah. What's the... Um, Let's let's talk about the guardians a little bit without um, okay. talking too much yeah. about them. And yeah, we, I mean, I think it's important to uh, to, to generate um, to, to really give somebody an idea of what the what we're going to encounter here because I think this is the coolest part of the book by far. 
Um, it, science, in, in terms of science, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think it, the, the, it, well, it, well, and it's also in terms of theme, the core of the book. Um, it's the cool but, science fiction idea at the heart of the book novel. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and, and I have two really great, uh, I, two, two, uh, two of my good friends uh, are really, really uh, outstanding. They're both retired now, but outstanding microbiologists, and they kind of steered me through all this. Um, and uh, I, in fact, I was taking a course on, on microbes <laughs> from one of them. Uh, and and uh, in the adult education thing here locally, um, and uh, and it was in that course that I got the idea for how how the alien how, how the guardians are who they are, and exactly how to exactly how to have a large organism that can be unaging, um, and so that's so uh, so part of it is that they are. Uh, Bio. They, they, let's say that such a being might be bioengineered, uh, either uh, from scratch or possibly as a result of an, uh, a race becoming sufficiently advanced in in their genetic uh, research that they can start rearranging their own genetic code, their own genome, to the extent that they can produce these effects. I mean, the, and the effects I I talk about, I don't think are impossible. I think. In terms of microbiology, they are um, within. They're, they're not just crazy ideas. There, there are reasonable explanations for them in the book as to how they could come about. Um, the question, though, then becomes: if you're, if you don't ever age, what does that do? What does that mean to your psychology? Um, uh, um, it, 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 change, it certainly changes your outlook on life, but the question is how, and that's one of the things that the book deals with. What are these people like after having been around for a really, really long time? Um, yeah, I mean, you, in, in a way, it's the Lotus Eaters, right? It's, uh, it's uh, The idea is that you ne- wouldn't necessarily become godlike, and know everything and be all powerful, you would instead. Um, it depends on the person right. you are you going in. You've got the same brain. You can't, you can't know everything because you've got the same size brain you always had. And you don't even remember everything, right? We don't remember everything. Yeah, you know, we get to be, we don't remember everything from our infancy, and that was only, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, depending upon our age. So these guys, if you've lived for a thousand years, what do you remember of the first 900? Um, not much because you, the, uh, your 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 brain doesn't have an infinite capacity to remember things. Um, so, yeah, I mean that's certainly part of it. You don't become godlike. You're you're still a, you're still a being with the same limitations you had before. You just don't get any older physically. Uh, and Sam's right. um, encounter with uh, who's the one that he, is it Tiana or um, Tiana? The, yeah, Tiana. Yeah, is um, he's he's puzzled by that. I mean, it's it's a really interesting exchange to me. It's a philosophical uh, moment that um, that was sort of an aha moment philosophically for me when I was uh, initially reading your book. The uh, ah, really? Oh, I love it when yeah, that happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's cool, and I think it will be for a lot of readers. Um, it, it, which is. I mean, just kind of talk about Frank's, I mean, Frank's, um, Sam's, um, Sam's uh, reaction as he slowly realizes the, the mentality of, of this uh, guardian. He doesn't dislike her. Um, yeah, well, of course, he intensely dislikes her uh, because of what she's done. But as as he gets to know yeah, her, yeah. then his yeah. his feelings become more and more complicated the more he understands about her. I guess, uh, well, I don't want to give too much away, but I, just... The, that, that's the problem. It's tough that to, I want to talk about it, but re- it's tough to talk about it without telling the part of the story that I want the readers to read. You know, I want the yeah, story yeah. to... Yeah, okay, they, all right, all right. You know, I, so, but no, I, I, I know, I, I'd love to... I, I, I want to talk about this, uh, but... I, I, but I don't want to ruin what the readers will find in the, uh, 
when they actually read the story because that's really it's 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 meant to be read, you know. Um, yeah. The, uh, well, let's so um, let's talk about, about some of the yeah some of the, the the crew a little bit more um, and Sam's um, relationships with getting his ship in order. Uh, Miko running deer, um, the others. How is he different from the original captain? Because a lot of this is just about that sort of psychological, uh, you know, it is sort of um, Herman Woke borrowed uh, um, stuff about shipboard uh, well, it is. I mean, and it, it absolutely and is. And, uh, no, and I, no apologies, because if you're going to borrow, borrow from the best, huh? Um, Absolutely. It, it, um, the, it, uh, the, the first thing that I wanted to do is, I mean, there's, this is a long journey they take to get there, and they have no idea what they're going to find at the end. They have no idea if they're even just going to end up in a star someplace. So the first question is, how do you maintain crew morale in a situation where none of them even know how do you maintain discipline? How do you keep people focused when nobody has any, when there's the traditional basis of discipline and crew motivation might just be out the window? Um, so that's a very, and I wanted, I didn't want to just brush that off. I didn't want that just to be, oh, yeah, they spent a long time and then we get there because because human beings um under that sort of stress are going to have problems. And I didn't want the whole book to be about that, but I, did, I didn't want to just make that, um, uh, it, it just pretend that just because a ship has, just because the people on a ship wear uniforms, that means they're going to follow orders and do this stuff in, the, in, in a situation that is completely, um, they have no reason to believe that following orders will necessarily get them out of this alive. Um, so how do you keep them you know, and, and what sort of problems do they encounter along the way in terms of um, breakdowns in discipline and morale, and how does that manifest itself? Um, those are some things that the first part of the book talks about, and I think I, I think I, I felt had to had to address um, that it's just this is not a normal situation, and people are not going to behave normally. Yeah, and Sam takes a lot of the lessons he learned in chain of command. He was kind of learning himself about what it takes to be a captain in that one and this one he's yes. uh he's kind of found himself in a way and he's able to to get his crew especially his ex his xo and and some of it and just everyone um starting to see what it takes to have a well-functioning ship as opposed to one that's okay but right and there's also the fact that this ship the the Kamran Bay missed out on all the combat in the in, in the in the last war uh, because there was there was some it, it's a newly built ship and there were some problems uh, with with the, with the electronics and they it kind of kept them going back for refits and they never got into the war so everybody on this ship uh, in terms of the ship's crew have no experience of war um, and Sha- and Sam's not didn't it wasn't for long but it was a very intense experience of war so a lot of what sam is doing now is trying to having understood how quickly people can rise because people at the top can get knocked off uh, he is trying to prepare this crew not just to function but to function without him i mean that's one of his goals is to make everybody understand you could end up being captain you know look at me um, so that, and that's something that I think it takes running deer a while to realize. And I think she finds unsettling when she does, you know, he's really getting me ready to take over in case he dies. And the idea that he would die just is not something that occurred to her. Um, so that's, so yeah, there's, there's, there's that element as well in terms of how he's trying to, how he's trying to prepare them. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Well, what else do we need? What can, what else can we talk about to uh, round out our uh, our discussion of the book? Well, um, let's see. In terms of the approach of the book, a chain of command is told exclusively through Sam's point of view. Um, every chapter of the book is is it, all we get is all we get is just Sam's lens on everything. What Ship of Destiny does, which is a little different, is 
I'd say, oh, half or a little more of the book is told through Sam's point of view. But there are chapters that are told that where you we see we will see an event through Sam's how Sam thinks of something, um, and how what he his relationship is with someone, and then then maybe the next chapter will be through that person's eyes, and we understand, and then we get to see that Sam's not always right about <laughs> about what's going on around him. Uh, he's not you know this he's not absolutely he's not infallible. He doesn't get everything that's going on. There are relationships going on that he does not understand, and they're just completely opaque to him. So we get a lot of these things from other people's points of view. We have a number of chapters from. Uh, Cassandra Atwater Jones's point of view, and so we get a real insight into how she felt about their relationship and how she things she thought that went wrong. Um, but we also get chapters from Running Deer's point of view, his executive officer, um, and it, there's things about how she thinks of him that he never understand, uh, never understands. There's uh, a number of other characters that we get. Uh, from so I I like very much. One of the things I like about the book is that it it does that it takes the camera away from Sam for significant chunks of the book and puts it in other people's hands. There are even chapters told from the point of view of the guardian, Teana. You know, we actually even get into her head um, and and how she and, and her attempt to understand all the bizarre things about Sam that I don't know that we that we, you would even think were bizarre until Teana, through her lens, tries to sort this out. Um and you know, and, and how she kind of interprets him, I think, is real interesting. So that's one of the things I like about the book is that 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 moving the lens just away from Sam. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a it's a big, comprehensive book, and uh, it's it's super fun. Um, science fiction, <laughs> adventure, everything you might want in a in a science fiction novel. Um, what what are you uh, you were mentioning uh, the Persian stuff? Uh, what are you working on at the moment? Right now, right at the moment, I'm working on uh, a trilogy of uh, of novels uh, set in the 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 final about the final decade and, and uh, of the not even not even that long in the in the of the Persian Empire. Um, it's uh, covering um, the events leading up to and then Alexander's conquest of the empire, but told exclusively through the eyes of the Persians. Um, so it's a little bit of different cultural take on things as to as to what was going on uh, but that's been an interest of mine i mentioned that that's been an interest of mine for oh at least a quarter of a century an intense interest i have uh, I, in fact i just got done teaching um a course uh at the local uh, at the university of illinois local uh, uh lifelong learning center on uh, the, 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 I, I called it the war that invented history, uh, the Greek-Persian War, because our notion of history, kind of modern history, begins with um, Herodotus's history of that war. He, he so he sort of invented what we think of as the discipline of history to tell the story of that war, um, and. and it, it comes from the title of his book, which is you know, Inquiries, but the Greek word for inquiries we translate as history. Um, uh, so, we had an email exchange at one point where we were arguing a little bit about uh, the importance of Marathon, the battle, uh, which you don't <laughs> yeah. think it's, it actually saved the West or anything like that. No, you have other no, opinions. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think it saved the West. It, uh, um, because I mean, the, 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 that that expedition, the expedition of, of Darius, was just meant to be a punitive, because the Athenians had burned Sardis, so he was going to burn Athens. That was that expedition was just to slap him around for having supported the Ionian Revolt. Um, would would burning Athens have you know, ended Western civilization? Well, you know, ten years later, Xerxes burns Athens twice. <laughs> captures Athens and burns it, and then the next year comes back and captures it again. So, and and Western civilization seems to have gotten along okay without that. So, um, no, I don't think Marathon was a uh, Marathon was a very interesting battle, and it's a very interesting moment in Greek history because democracy is there, but it hasn't really. It's a question as to how how deep the roots have sunk at that point, um, because I mean the Persians have with them. 
the orig- as an advisor, the the dictator of uh, the, the the tyrant of Athens that the Athenians had kicked out. He's still around. Or his, well, his, his, the son of the uh, the son is, but the uh, the kind of uh, heir apparent of the tyrant. Um, so this is boy, democracy is really new at that point, and it's not a, it's not a sure thing. So that that makes it an interesting moment. But I don't know. I don't think it would have significantly changed the course of history. Not marathon. Other stuff might have been not marathon. So, but, all that, right, all but right. that's not even covered in this trilogy. You know, that's kind of that's pre-story. That comes way before. This is all just this is all just Philip of Macedon and then Alexander. It's their story. Uh, well, it, it's their impact on Persia and what's going on there. That's that's really the time huh. that this novel set. Those others, well, that sounds know, super cool. There's, there's plenty of time for those novels, too. <laughs> because those are good stories to tell as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds really great. Um, and But out now at Booksellers Everywhere is Ship of Destiny, um, part of the Kotohaz series by Frank Chadwick. Uh, well, Frank, thank you so much for uh, talking with us about Ship of Destiny. Oh, it was fun. Thanks very much, Tony. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Salarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has won the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. GSNS Protector Oliver I. Manticore Binary System, Star Empire of Manticore. Honor! Michael Mayhew turned with a smile as Honor and Mercedes Brigham followed the earnest-faced young ensign who'd been their escort from Protector Oliver I's boat bay. Soft music played in the background, stewards circulated with trays of finger food and wine glasses, and conversation hummed in the background as he held out his hand. Honor gripped it firmly, smiling back at him, and Nimitz chittered a greeting of his own from her shoulder. Mayhew laughed and extended his hand to the tree cat in turn, and Honor chuckled. Even as she did, though, she couldn't avoid the reflection that Mayhew, who was twenty years her junior, looked at least ten years her senior. That was the difference between the third-generation prolong she'd received as a child and the first-generation prolong he'd received when he was already adult. And even so, he looked far younger than his older brother Benjamin. It's good to see you, Mayhew continued, then grimaced. I know, I know, we see each other a lot, either on the comm or in person, but that's always official business. I suppose this is two in a way, but at least the two of us don't have to talk shop tonight. That will be something of a relief, she acknowledged. There are times I find myself forgetting I'm an honest spacer, given all the time I spend in conferences, discussions, planning sessions, worry sessions. She shrugged, and Mayhew nodded. I know, and it'll get even worse after the Beowulf referendum is certified. Getting them integrated into the Alliance is going to take some doing. With all due respect, my lord, not as much as you might be thinking, another voice said, and Honor turned with a smile as the blue-eyed man in the uniform of a Grayson Rear Admiral joined the conversation. Michal, she said, I was wondering where you were. Well, I wouldn't want to say anything about the heirs of a planetary ruler short-circuiting proper military etiquette or anything like that. Rear Admiral Michel Lukacs, commanding officer of 1st Battle Division, 6th Battle Squadron, GSN, said, But, as I'm sure you and Commodore Brigham understand perfectly, 
the correct procedure is for you to be greeted by Captain White first. Honor looked around quickly, then back at Lukacs. At least you waited until that poor ensign wasn't around to hear you, she said severely. It wasn't his fault Michael here shortstopped me. Excuse me, Mayhew said with a smile. But unless I'm mistaken, I'm the brother of a planetary despot. That means I get to jump the queue whenever I feel like it. The fact that you're in a position to abuse your authority doesn't make it right, Honor told him. And Michelle is completely correct. She craned her neck, looking for Captain Zachary White, Protector Oliver's commanding officer, and Lukacs's flag captain. Since White was easily six centimeters taller than she was, he was seldom hard to spot. This time, though, where is Zach? Actually, Lukacs said, at this particular moment, he's helping Misty deal with a slight emergency. Edward and a tray of canopies were in a head-on collision. Oh my, Honor shook her head. I am so not looking forward to Raoul turning eight. Young Edward is actually very well behaved, especially by the standards of Grayson males, Michael Mayhew told her. Yes, and this wasn't his fault, Lukacs said. Despite Zach's centimeters, Edward's still not very tall, you know. The steward just didn't see him. In fact, the real reason Zach's helping deal with it is that Edward's upset. He thinks he ruined his dad's party, so I told Zach to nip off to reassure him and that I'd hold the fort until he got back. I think I remember reading somewhere that a good flag officer always has his flag captain's back. That's what I'd heard at any rate, Honor said. But what was this about not as much as you might be thinking? From where I sit, getting Beowulf fully integrated is going to be something like Hercules in the stables. I don't think so, Lukacs disagreed respectfully. Oh, it's going to take a lot of work, and a lot of details will need hammering out, but the truth is that Beowulf's already effectively part of the Alliance. I mean, whose ships do you think are out there helping rebuild after Yawata? And unless I'm mistaken, Beowulf's also who's building the Mark 23s in our magazines. So what we'll really be doing is regularizing something that's been going on on a de facto basis for months now. That's actually true in a way, Michael Mayhew acknowledged. It's the regularizing and the hammering out I'm not looking forward to. No reason you should, my lord, Lukacs told him. And in fairness, it'll be a lot easier for us honest spacers who only have to worry about shooting at the enemy. Besides, is Michal already bending your ear, my lady? Another voice asked, and Honor turned as Captain Lenka Lukachova joined the conversation. Lukachova was about four centimeters shorter than her husband. She wore GSN uniform with the four golden cuff bands of a captain, but she also wore the chaplain corps crosses on her collar, not the sword insignia of a line officer. He promised he wouldn't do that, she continued, gold-flecked green eyes dancing. And he isn't Lenka, as you know perfectly well, Honor told her. In fact, he's hardly started making his points forcefully at all yet. Give him time, Lukachova suggested. I'm sure. And how are you? Any problems adjusting? She tried to stay in the loop as Task Force 3, the Grayson component of Grand Fleet, settled into place. It helped that Manticorans and Graysons had been serving and dying together for two T decades. But there were still differences between them, and a much larger percentage of the entire Grayson Space Navy had been permanently stationed here in Manticore following the Yuata strike and the emergence of the Grand Alliance. Despite the enormous strides Honor's adoptive homeworld had made, Grayson remained a highly religious, theocratic society. The Manticore binary system as a whole had less experience than the RMN's officer corps with Grayson's, and quite a few thousand Grayson's civilians and dependents had arrived in Manticore to help support TF3. Sliding them comfortably into a society whose basic constraints were sharply at odds with those of the society which had produced them was a non-trivial challenge. Lukachova, as the senior officer of the chaplain corps assigned to TF3, had a ringside seat for that sliding. Quite well, actually, the captain said now. Archbishop Telmaki couldn't have been more helpful, although I think most of your fellow Mantis are still a little bemused by the entire notion of official shipboard chaplains. Fair's fair, though. 
most of our people still have problems with the notion that the archbishop is only the senior prelate in a society which specifically rejects the notion of a state church. Some of my chaplains seem to have a little trouble understanding he can't simply wave his crucifix and make all of our stumbling blocks go away. You really are a deplorably secular bunch, aren't you? We stagger along as best we can, Honor said. And let's not forget that it was the example of our deplorably secular bunch that got Father Church to reconsider his position on priests who didn't have Y chromosomes. Michel Lukacs flung up his hand in the gesture of a Grayson judge at a fencing match, and his wife laughed. I've missed you, my lady, she said. But you're right, of course. She rolled her eyes. I can still remember all the apoplexy when Reverend Sullivan ordained me. I thought at least three of the elders would be carried off to glory that afternoon. She smiled in fond memory. And the way they waffled about titles, she shook her head. Do you know how close I came to being Brother Lenka? The sacristy had actually written a learned dissertation about the sanctity of the title. Thank the tester the reverend cut them off at the ankles. For some reason, Michael Mayhew said to no one in particular, for the last twenty years or so, Grayson seems to have been producing an unconscionable number of uppity females. Can't imagine how that happened. Well, it's certainly not my fault, Honor said austerely. In fact, it's probably more Mercedes' fault. Or hers and... Honor looked over Lukacs' shoulder as two more officers approached. Captain Davis's. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and an all-powerful Circean curse that will turn just about anything into delicious bacon, including bacon itself, plus thanks, praise, and plaudits to Frank Chadwick, author of Ship of Destiny. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.